Well, good morning. Morning. Open your Bible to Revelation 14. Let me catch you up on where where we are. Maybe you missed a couple weeks, or maybe this is your first Sunday. Thanks for being here with us. My name is Ken Delage. Serve as the lead pastor here, and uh, we'll be looking at Revelation 14. So let me tell you about Revelation 13. It was a hard passage, a difficult passage, one of sobriety, one of warning. In it we saw the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, making war against the people of God. And he does this through two different beasts that he causes to rise up and oppose God's people. The first was a beast of power who comes to manipulate and compel people to worship Him. This is the beast behind all the use of power in this world to turn people away from God. From martyrdoms to Sharia law to the threats of lawsuits to peer pressure in a locker room. The use of power pushing people from God. Then there was the second beast, this false prophet that came, and this is the spiritual power behind false religions in the world. He stands behind Islam and Buddhism and all the rest. The Revelation 13 is an ugly picture. It's of a kind of unholy trinity. The dragon and the two beasts. Seeking what belongs only to the trinity, which is the worship of all peoples on the earth. So the previous chapter gave us a very clear-eyed view of what lies behind what's happening in this world, on this plane where you and I live, in our day and time, the situations that we face. It looks at things from the vantage point of earth. Revelation 14, we get to start today takes a different perspective. It's the same story. It's the same story. It picks up at the very same time, talking about right now, talking about the church age, current events, that period of time we live in between the first and the second coming of Christ. But where the last chapter talked about sort of what's happening on earth during the church age, this one talks about what's happening in heaven during the church age. So that we can see. So that we can know. Because if your view is limited to earth, it's going to be rather discouraging. Because chapter 13's perspective was difficult and sober. But chapter 14's is rejoicing. So if last week was the church under siege, this week is the church victorious. And we get to see her with the Lord. We're going to limit ourselves this morning to just the first five verses of Revelation 14. So, get your Bible, follow along as we read God's Word. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And with Him, 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a loud thunder. 
The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. Lord, would you give us eyes to see your word, ears to understand your word, hearts to respond to your word. Lord, transform us by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the viewpoint goes from the war-ravaged fields of planet Earth to the victor's mountain in heaven the gathering that we just read about is on mount zion the place where christ rules over all as it says in verse one then i looked and behold on mount zion stood the lamb now it is quite possible that we're going to miss on first reading anyway the the dramatic significance of this statement because there's a lot of biblical context behind this particular statement. That on Mount Zion stands the Lamb. That Probably the biggest bit of context we need is from Psalm chapter 2. So let me just back up for a second and give you the context so we can appreciate what's happening here. So Psalm 2 is probably the most important psalm as relates to Jesus Christ. It's a psalm about Him ruling over the nations. But it starts with the nation's raging against God, plotting and scheming. How can we live without Him, without His law, without His ways, without His rules, without His holiness? And the peoples of the earth gather together for war against God. And the psalm says that God speaks to this gathered throng of the wicked. And as He speaks, it brings terror to them. Let's, let's ask a question for a second. What would God say that would bring terror to this gathered host that is raising their fists against God? What would He say to them that would, that would demonstrate His wrath and demonstrate the futility of what they're doing? Here's what He says. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So, as for me, God says, I've set my king on Zion. In other words, you can do all that you want, but there's already one reigning. You can do all that you want to, to get there, but his power is secure, his reign is established, and your attempts are futile. All the principalities and the powers of this world can do their worst, but there's a king on Mount Zion who reigns over all. 
That's the background. And so, coming off of the fields of battle of Revelation 13, where it's all martyrdom and captivity and, and difficulty for the church of God. To go from that to this, then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Now, now, this means that the beasts we just saw, they don't reign. They don't rule. The dragon behind them, he's not sovereign. There's one who is sovereign. He is seated high above this, and all that happens in chapter 13 cannot get to him. He rules and reigns over all. The beasts are doomed. They can do nothing against the one on the throne. The dragon's days are numbered because there is a king on Mount Zion. Now, what's neat is uh, Psalm chapter 2 said that the Lord's going to set his king on Mount Zion. Revelation reveals who that king is. It doesn't say there's a king on Mount Zion. It says there's a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Because the king is the lamb. The king is the one who died for his people. Who, who suffered on behalf of his people. That he could redeem his people. This is not a king who rules through force. He ruled through his own suffering and sacrifice. And by that, he defeated his enemies. So, behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Now, we learn more in Revelation from, than we did in Psalm. First of all, we learn that the king is a lamb. But secondly, and very surprisingly, we see that the, the king, the lamb, is not standing alone on the mountain. That's what God had said back in Psalm. I've set my king on the mountain. But here, here stands the lamb, and with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So if you're, if you're new to the book of Revelation, and frankly, if you've been here the whole time, let me catch you up, because Revelation talks differently than you and I do in regular life. Numbers are used symbolically in the book of Revelation. Right? So what is this number, 144,000? It is not a direct counting of the people standing with God. It is... It is a symbolic way of describing the people standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. What is it trying to describe? So, if you remember back to your math flashcards in fifth grade, 144 is 12 times 12. Right? So 144,000 here, we have 12 times 12 times 1,000. Throughout the book of Revelation, and even throughout the Bible, the number 12 is symbolic of the people of God. So in the Old Testament, Israel had 12 sons that were at that time the entirety of the people of God. And they were truly representative of the people of God. Then in the New Testament, Jesus gathers to himself 12 disciples who are representative of the people of God. And on the last day, the city of Jerusalem will have the names of the 12 Apostles and the names of the twelve sons of Israel inscribed on its gates and foundations. The number twelve has a very strong 
and I think relatively easy to discern, meaning it speaks of the people of God. The number 1,000 just means a multitude, means a lot. It's, it's very infrequently used to refer to precisely 1,000. Instead, it refers to a multitude of people. So, what do we have here with this number? We have 144,000, which is 12 times 12 times 1,000. It's, it's the people of God times the people of God times a multitude. Which is to say, it's all the people of God that are gathered together. It's everyone who has gone before us, faithful in the Lord, from both Testaments, the old and the new, gathering together. And still they gather, one, two, another one, another one, as, as the saints who've gone before, and now new saints. They walk through that valley of death, arrive on golden shores, arrive on the, 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 the slopes of Mount Zion, and ascend and take their place standing with the Lamb. So this, is, this number is the gathered people of God from all times. So, church, if you are in Christ, you are in this number. Or rather, you will be when you die. That's, we're going we're gonna to join this gathered throng. These are the saints who have died, who have conquered, who have arrived at Mount Zion. If you're going to understand the rest of this passage correctly, you must fix it in your mind who this group is. You must understand that these are those who come out of the war of this present age that was just described last chapter. They make it through. They come through through captivity, through martyrdom, through suffering, through pain. They make it through. They conquer often through their death, and they arrive here to take their place with the Lamb Himself. If you're to understand and be changed, be given hope by this passage, you have to know that this is your people. That this is your group. If you're in Christ, you belong to this group. This is not a subset of special Christians. This is not a group of the extra holy. The people gathered here are sinners. Gathered from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Saved by the death, the suffering of Jesus Christ. Washed by the blood of the Lamb. And made holy by His good work. Now, I'm going to say it again. If you're going to gain the hope that this passage is meant to give to you, you have to wrestle with and agree with that it's talking about you. If it's talking about somebody else, then you can have hope for them. God would have you have hope for you, saint, one in Christ, person who is, who is in the Lord today. This is for you that you could have hope. Because all who rely on the Lamb in the valley will stand with the Lamb on the mountain. Glory to God. How, how can we have certainty? Uh, it's easy to have certainty when you're looking at the Bible. Harder when you're looking at yourself. And we see how, how, 
the first bit of certainty, and it is powerful, is still in verse 1. They have his name, that is the Lamb's name, and his Father's name written on their forehead. The people of God are sealed with the name of God. Sealed and safe and secure and kept and protected and preserved. The God who writes His name on His people will bring them home to glory. Now, what are they doing? What's this group doing? What is the victorious church about as they stand on Mount Zion? Well, they are worshiping. And their worship sounds amazing. I think our worship this morning sounded great. I think this, probably safe to say, sounds better. We're longing for that day. Verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Friends, this is a picture of the church in her glory. I say it carefully because the glory of the church is entirely due to the glory of the Lamb. But there's something we can see about the glory of the Lamb by viewing the glory He's given to His people. And this people is remarkable. First of all, they show up with the King of Psalm 2 and stand with Him on Mount Zion. This people reigns with the king, reigns with the lamb. They get to stand with him. But then we get to see their worship. We hear them singing. The sound is loud. The roar of many waters, the sound of loud thunder. There's power in this worship, a strength, a volume of, of worship unto the king, but it's, it's powerful and loud mixed with beauty. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. It's beautiful worship music cranked all the way up on the sound system, shaking Mount Zion as they sing their song to the Lamb. Now what are they singing? They're singing a song known only to them. What? Angels don't know this song? The, the cherubim and the seraphim can't sing this song? The four living creatures who are around the throne and never cease to worship, they don't join this song? No. None of them do. Indeed, none in all creation 
can learn this song because it is entirely and exclusively the song of the redeemed. Only the redeemed know the notes of this song to the Lamb who redeemed them. What kind of gospel do we have, friends, that would turn us from sinners to singers like this? This should make us marvel that the church has such glory as to stand in heaven and sing a song that heaven listens to. This is the glory of the Lamb. Now, where is the church standing while they sing? Look, where is the church standing? Verse 3. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. So, Revelation 4 and 5 tells us about what the kind of... Uh, furniture layout of heaven looks like and in the center is the throne and then around the throne you've got these four living creatures closest in and then you've got these 24 elders and they're the they're the choir masters of heaven they're the worship leaders of heaven and they're they're never ceasing to sit to sing holy 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 is the lord god almighty and all the rest of heaven gathers circular style around them around the throne but this group, this group makes their way up and up and up and gets to stand right before the throne. They're so close to the throne that they're now before the throne and before that next circle out of living creatures and 24 elders. That is to say, they are standing where no one else dare stand and they're singing a song that no one else can sing this is the church in her glory now how is the church described because the description gives glory to the lamb as well verse 4 it is these who have not defiled themselves with women for they are virgins now this is again not a physical description of people but rather a spiritual uh, picture. This is a picture of a people who have kept themselves for Christ. It's a kind of a spiritual monogamy. Monogamy, one man, one woman, one lifetime. Right. So these people have, have kept themselves pure for one. They have place in their heart that only Christ can fill. They have remained and kept themselves faithful to Him that they may be wed to Him. Verse 4 goes on. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Do you remember what Jesus said when He came to earth? What was His calling that He he issued to people during his ministry, around his miracles, to his initial disciples. It was always this, follow me. Sometimes he would add some things. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Or take up your cross 
and follow me. But it was always this. It was always follow me. That's the essence of being a disciple. We are followers of Jesus. And how are these described? These are those who have heeded that call. These are those who, who said, yes, Lord, when he said, follow me. These are those who follow him wherever he goes. When he leads towards the hurting of this world, when he leads towards the widow, when he leads his people towards the orphan, they follow. When he leads his people into mission, when he leads them to evangelize, when he leads them to sacrifice their own comfort for the sake of his name, they gladly follow. And even when he sets his face towards suffering, and towards hardship, and towards martyrdom, even there they follow. For they follow him wherever he goes. These are his disciples. Verse 4, again, the last phrase. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. Now, first fruits are kind of part of the harvest. They're the early part of the harvest. So, you know, you're looking at the cherry tree and, oh, wow, three cherries are ripe. And the, you know, cherry tree owner is really excited because he knows it's not just those three. There's more coming. Or the gardener that walks outside and finally there's like one tomato starting to turn red. One cucumber, just big enough, maybe I could take this inside and have a salad. The heart of the gardener is happy and excited. Not so much just because of the one cucumber, but the harvest that is to come. So these are first fruits of the harvest. In other words, Christ is, throughout human history, still gathering people to this number. By ones and twos, day by day, as his people gather to Mount Zion together to worship him. This is before the last and final harvest, which, by the way, is the end of chapter 14. We're going to read about the final harvest. That has not yet happened here, so these are still the first fruits. But it also says, these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits. These are the redeemed. Lest we think that the description of these people has to do with how great these people are. But let's not misunderstand. There's a, there's a greatness here. These are standing with God before the throne, worshiping Him. These are reigning with Christ on Mount Zion. But the thing is, their greatness is not their own. Their greatness comes from the greatness of the Lamb who stands among them. These are redeemed. He has redeemed them. So once every one of these worship leaders, every one of these singers, every one of these standing with the risen Christ, once they were slaves to sin, once they were living in the kingdom of darkness, following the prince of the power of the air, hating God and hating one another, loving their sin, hating God. But God. 
But God, being rich in mercy. But God sent His Son to redeem His people. He pardoned His people by His blood. He purchased His people by His death. He paid for His people by the cross. He did the rescuing. He did the redeeming. He did the restoring. There is a purchased people standing before God in heaven. And their presence in heaven brings not just glory to them, it brings great glory to the Lamb. And so we look at these people and we stand amazed, not just at them, but rather at Him. That He would do such a thing with such a people. Verse 5. Still describing these people. And in their mouth no lie was found. For they are blameless. There's no lie in their mouth. Unlike the dragon. Who is the father of lies. Unlike the beasts made in his image. Speak as the dragon speaks with lies. These people. Well these people used to speak that way. Lying to themselves. Lying to others. But now. Now they're children of the truth. They've stopped following the dragon. Now they follow the one who is called the way and the truth and the life. His words are in their mouth. His truth is on their tongue. They are blameless, pure, undefiled, holy, righteous. Where did the Lamb find a people such as this? It cannot be among the children of men. Doesn't the scripture say, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's no one pure, no one upright, no one blameless, not in our race, not in the dragon's kingdom, but God being rich in mercy, redeemed for himself. He came after a group of liars and made us truth speakers. He comes after the blameworthy and makes us blameless. Behold the power of the gospel. You think that the gospel just saves sinners from hell? Praise God it does that. Amen. Praise God the gospel saves people from hell. But it doesn't just keep sinners from the depths of hell. It takes sinners to the heights of heaven and makes them the worship leaders before the throne itself. All glory be to Christ, our King. All glory be to Christ. That He could take us from such depths and raise His people to such heights. This is the work of Jesus Christ. And we revel in it. And we praise Him for it. So there's this group. They stand next to the Lamb as He rules over all. They sing a song that fits only in their mouths. It is the song of the redeemed. They stand before the throne where all else in creation fears to stand. These are described as faithful spiritually. Spiritually monogamous. None has their heart but Christ. 
These are true disciples who follow Jesus wherever He goes. These are the first fruits of His harvest that He has redeemed. They speak the truth and they are blameless. How is all of this possible? It is possible only because of the Lamb who was slain. All glory be to Christ our King. Let me ask you this morning. Are you following the Lamb? Are you following the Lamb? Have you, have you come to recognize something which, once you recognize, will become one of the most obvious realities in all the world? And that is that you are broken morally. You know what is right, but tend towards what's wrong. This is called being a sinner. And Christ came for such as you. Thank God. He came that you could be forgiven. So let me ask you today to turn, just admit your need. God, forgive me. God, help me. Give me faith that I might see you as this risen Lamb of God. Repent today, friend. Repent today. Don't put it off. The days of repentance are few, the days of eternity, many. Saints, you who are redeemed, um, <laughs> perhaps like me, you look at this description and it is not particularly easy for you to find yourself among this number. Perhaps like me, you, you read this and you think, blameless, never lying, <laughs> never loving anything like I love Christ. And we mourn our sin. Well, dear friends, let us mourn our sin. And then let us look at our Savior. Because this is His work. And He's going to finish it, friends. This is why this is here. So that you can know this is what He's doing. This is where you're going. He's not done. Another verse in the Bible, doesn't it say that He's going to finish every work He begins? This is the finished work. Look at who you will be in Christ and take hope for today. Look at who you're going to be in Christ and take hope for today. There is hope here for every believer in every stage of maturity. Look at what He will do and, and take hope in Him. So take up your cross again. Put sin to death again. Take hope that that sin you've wrestled with for 15 years and don't feel like it's moved an inch. Guess what? It's gonna move. On that day, you will stand and He will say, blameless. With that day in mind, live today. With that day in mind, fight your sin. Rouse yourself afresh to the pursuit of God, to the pursuit of holiness, to putting to death the things of the body, to meditating on what is to come, to learning to love others and give ourselves for the sake of others and speak the good news of Jesus to the lost around us. Rouse yourself from slumber. There's a good day coming. Be vigilant. Be diligent. There's a good day coming. 
Let's live today because of this day that is coming. Perhaps you've walked through a transition in your life at some point. You knew it was coming for a long time. You prepared. You got ready. But then it happened, and you knew it was coming, but it was still surprising. And now life is different. You come around the corner, now life is different. It's never going to be the same. It's, it's a new trajectory, a new way. I know you face that. Friends, this day is coming. Suddenly, it will be upon you. Huh. Or it's be the day. Suddenly, we will be climbing this mountain to take our place and sing this song. Suddenly. And we will never turn back. And it will always be different from that moment on. All at once. We will be there. These are short days we have to live unto that day. So let us live to the glory of the Lamb while He gives us the privilege to do so. Amen. Worship team, come on up. Church, let's stand. Lord, I pray that you would help us to set our minds on the things above, not on things of earth. Thank you for your word that redirects our gaze at the eternal, at the hope-filled, at Mount Zion itself, and on Mount Zion, the Lamb who was slain. Lord, would you keep this fresh in our hearts and in our minds so that by it, by the hope that you give, we would live with zeal and diligence and live unto your glory because you're worthy of glory, King Jesus. Receive now this song of worship to you, we pray in your name.